Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow. Mad cow. Mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Sangai Nation, welcome to the show on another Friday afternoon. Sangai along with Chris Marks here today. And right before we jump into things with our guests, let me give you some show notes if you're looking for some professional wrestling in the next couple of days. Tonight, WCWO at the Outlaw Arena in Indianapolis, Indiana, as usual. FGW in Hamilton, Ohio. Battle Zone Wrestling in Richland, Mississippi. DCCW in Muncie, Indiana, featuring the Hall of Fame inductions, including that of the High Rollers. You can include me in there. I'm a High Roller, too, but I will not be in attendance, but definitely go support that in Muncie. Rumble on the River in Manchester, Ohio tonight. RCW in Sims, Illinois. CWC in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Tomorrow night, you can find me in Ocean Shores, Washington for Rogue Wrestling Attractions. Tomorrow night, CPW in Arlington, Washington, presenting Theatrical Wrestling. Battle Zone Wrestling back in Richland, Mississippi tomorrow night. AWA in Waldorf, Maryland. FWF in Warsaw, Indiana. SNPW in Crossville, Illinois. GLWA in Coloma, Michigan. EBPW in Pachico, California. Pro Wrestling Team in Lake Station, Indiana. WFW in Connersville, Indiana. SIP in Inkster, Michigan. And NSWA in Paris, Tennessee tomorrow. But without any further ado, I want to welcome our guest to the show. We have been very excited anticipating her arrival today. We have with us former professional wrestler, Miss Misty Dawn. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We're definitely excited to have you here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, since it is your first time with us, I will lead you off today with the traditional first-timer question. What got you into the business of professional wrestling? Okay, so I was your avid wrestling fan. I went every Thursday night to wrestling. It was my birthday. I bought a brand-new outfit, was all ready to go in the front row. The ladies took the ring. And they started to wrestle. I just sat down with a beer looking all hot and fine. And this chick threw this other chick out right on me. And beer went all over me. And so the next thing I know, me and this lady wrestler are fighting. (laughs) I ended up against the wall and Bob Daigle came out and said, hey, let her go. I like her. Let me talk to her. 
So he introduced me to Wild Man, and long story short, I became a wrestler. <laughs> a wild man refers to wild Polynesian man. Polynesian wild man, yes. Yes. Now, for the fans that are long-time listeners of this show, they might remember he was in the very first main event I saw when I attended wrestling live and in person, fighting Dick the Bruiser. So, very familiar with him. And we don't hear a lot of people mention him as a trainer for pro wrestling. What was it like training with the Wild Polynesian Man? Well, it was really awesome training. I didn't only train with him. I trained with a bunch of guys. I also trained with, you know, other women wrestlers, but he was my main trainer. And, you know, if I could hold my own and, and learn, then he knew I would be all right. I had my nose broke in St. Regis High School defending my title against Judy Starfire in Chicago. I lost my gallbladder here defending my title in St. Louis uh, Catholic High School here in town. I've, I have two metal plates in my neck. It was, I paid my dues the hard way. Definitely sounds that way. I said it was a lot different then than it is now. Lady wrestlers back then were treated more, not not like a sideshow kind of thing, but more like a filler. We were more treated more like fillers than we were the true stars. Very seldom did we get main events, but once in a while we would. You spent a lot of your career in the WWA, which is, of course, Dick the Bruiser's promotion out of Indianapolis. He had a lot of talent in his territory over the years, and even towards the end, he had a lot of really good talent. Uh, They may not have gotten nationally known, but they were very, very good at what they did. People like Great yeah. Wojo and Chris Carter, Bobo Brazil Jr., people like that. Prince Mama Muhammad. Absolutely. <laughs> they were all very good. They weren't, I, I don't know, um, this is maybe a, a little known fact, but I believe um, Marty Janetti crossed paths with us. And Steiner, I watched him, Mark Steiner, I believe his name was, go off of the ring over and over and over in Canada before he left Bruiser and went to the WWF. So there were a lot of stars we had. Now, when you're in a wrestling territory, when you were actively working for Dick the Bruiser, it's different than today's wrestling because you had sort of a set schedule where you could wrestle five, six, seven days a week in a given territory and make a living full-time where most of the time now, if you're on the independence, you're wrestling maybe two or three times at the very most 
per week, and it's not usually a full-time living. What was it like when you started your career versus at the end of your career when things were starting to go from the territorial system to the independent system? It definitely, in the beginning of my career, the, the crowds were sold out. And it would not be a surprise to walk out and see a sold-out crowd or pretty much sold-out crowd. Towards the end of my career, however, the crowds seemed to dwindle a great deal because there wasn't any promoter that could keep up with Vince McMahon. He killed, he personally killed independent wrestling. It's how I feel. It's my opinion. Now, people in and around Indianapolis will remember pretty fondly the television show that Dick the Bruiser put on there. Uh, a lot of guys got their start on TV in Indianapolis before moving on to the national companies. And that television exposure, I'm sure, prepare them for wrestling on television at the national level. What was it like for you whenever there were TV cameras present for shows where you wrestled? Okay, at the very first, when, when I first started wrestling, the cameras scared me. The people scared me. I was just terrified. The wrestlers actually pushed me out of the, out of the dressing room to the ring, pushed me towards the ring, so I had to go. And when they lowered the mic, I just knew everybody and it could hear my heart beating. Um, then it, it, it just changed a lot from there. People treated you a lot different than when you first started. And I, I couldn't, I wore glasses, so I took my glasses off and I really had tunnel vision. I just concentrated on whoever I was wrestling and I couldn't see anybody else, so that worked out for me. <laughs> I just pretended there was nobody there. I just kept my eye on my opponent. Now, we've heard a lot in recent years on documentaries and so forth about up until the late 90s, a lot of women's wrestlers came from Fabulous Moolah's camp, and she trained the bulk of the women that were touring nationally and would get a cut of their money. You came yes. from a different area with different trainers, so you weren't part of that camp. Do you have a lot of experience with the people that were out of Moolah's camp, or were you always wrestling people separate from her camp? My path crossed a couple of her girls paths when I filled in and wrestled for Glow, which I did twice. And then I also filled in and wrestled for POW. So, yes, I did cross paths with girls that had actually worked with her, but we didn't speak of, you didn't speak about those things at that time. We, it just was not talked about openly. We all knew what was going on, but we just couldn't talk about it. If you wanted to work, you kept your mouth shut. 
totally understand that. <laughs> and looking back on things, do you think that coming out of the area you did with the training you did, you had a better time in the wrestling business than if you would have gone through Moolah's camp with that crew and worked for that camp? Absolutely, because the guys that trained me, I trusted them. I was being suplexed and body slammed by big wrestling dudes. So um, I work at a, on a side note, I work at a hotel, and we may have many wrestlers come. And I used to be an auditor there, and I had a conversation with Daniel Ambrose and I believe uh, Ted DiBiase Jr. And we talked about the business, and they talked about how they admire and wish they had been during our time because, yes, they make more. Yes, they have way more exposure. But bottom line is we had way more fun, and we did have a blast. Of course, Bruiser's territory was a little more unique than a lot of other territories because he basically stayed confined to the state of Indiana with just occasional shows right over the border in the surrounding states. So there wasn't the same amount of, like, thousand-mile trips every single week. But traveling you know, around the state. Oh, go ahead. Our biggest trip was like uh, to Canada to wrestle for George Cannon, or maybe to the southern part of Michigan, or I mean Missouri. That's about where our reach was. Ohio, Canada, Michigan, Illinois, uh, Missouri, southern Missouri. Did some in uh, Memphis area, Tennessee area, and all over Indiana. I'm looking at kind of what other people may have done and looking at the way wrestling is now, do you think you would have liked it better the way you had it with the travel was sort of limited. You could be in your own bed every night and still wrestle every day. Or do you think you would have liked the national touring where you're in a different city in a different part of the country every single day for weeks on end? I wouldn't have traded it for the world. I would have done it exactly like I did it, working here and there, you know, being home. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was an awesome experience. I wouldn't want to be in today's wrestling world. Not at all. Understandable. Definitely not for everybody. No. I'm old school. I paid my dues the hard way. I, I didn't get by on just my good looks alone. I I... I would fight men. I wrestled men before that was even a thing. So, yeah, I'm old school. 
And when it came time for you to start wrestling away from the home base there from Dick the Bruiser, was it easy for you to get bookings on your own, or did you have to have help initially to get bookings and let your work sort of progress to where you were able to get things on your own? How did that work for you? No, I was never allowed to get a booking on my own. If a promoter wanted me, uh, he had to go through Dick. So if, if George Can wanted me, he had to go through Bruiser. Um, if Bill Till wanted me in Upper Michigan, he had to go through Bruiser. Everything went through Dick to Bruiser. A lot of people that listen to us know, but some of the fans listening may not realize, Dick the Bruiser had a small territory there in Indiana, and he introduced a lot of his family members into professional wrestling. His son, Carl, wrestled as Leroy Redbone. His uh-huh. son-in-law wrestled. Uh, Scott Romer, of course, was Saul Creechman, one of the main managers for Dick the Bruiser. Uh, his other son-in-law, the Golden Lion, eventually went on to be Dick the Bruiser Jr. and is still active to this day. So it was sort of a family affair with Dick the Bruiser. Did you get to work with a lot of Bruiser's relatives directly as far as what the fans saw, or were you sort of separate from the Bruiser family. I worked some matches with the Golden Lion, but he wasn't married to Dick's daughter yet. But other than that, no Spike Huber and all of those, I didn't. I didn't wrestle with any of them. I talked earlier about having filled in at Glow and Pal. Was that something that? Dick the Bruiser set up for you, or did they contact you and you had to clear it with Bruiser? Nope. They absolutely reached out to Bruiser. Bruiser reached out to me. There was special specifications that he expected out of me that um, I could not wrestle by Misty Dawn. I had to wrestle as Sunshine for POW, and I had to wrestle as the Kansas City Kid for the glow. And I couldn't have my hair down because I also I always wrestled with my hair down. It had to be in a French braid all the way back so I didn't really look like Misty Dawn. <laughs> Very interesting. But it was fun. <laughs> oh, wait. And my limo driver to the glow wrestling match in Pennsylvania was none other than George the Animal Steel. Did you know that he owned limousines? I did not know that the animal owned limousines. <laughs> and he drove Wild Man and I to Pennsylvania so I could wrestle for Guelph. And drove us back. Very interesting. Now, One of the things that a lot of wrestlers in the last several years have talked about was there wasn't a lot of money 
and Dick the Bruiser's territory, the later part of it, uh, it had slowed down quite a bit the WWF and so forth, and pay wasn't quite the same. Not that he was ever like a really well-known, great payoff guy to start, but you wrestled for a few other promoters. You don't have to get specific or anything like that, but right. who would you say was the best payoff guy that you worked for in your career? That was one of the famous promotions that I listed that I wrestled for. One of those two famous pro- promotions. Gotcha. But when you worked for Dick, it wasn't about the money. You knew you weren't going to get a big, big payday. It was about the fun, the camaraderie, the getting out, the wrestling. Either you, wrestling was in your blood or it wasn't. And you enjoyed a good, hard-fought match. And that's what I gave every time I stepped into that ring, a good, hard-fought match. So it, it looked like maybe I was making a lot of money, but I gave I, I gave a wrestling match like I like a WWF star would have because it wasn't about the money; it was all about the family. We were a family. Now, speaking of having hard-fought matches, one of the things that has always been part of wrestling and it continues today is sometimes blood gets introduced into matches. In more recent times, a lot of people have taken a stance that it's not acceptable because of what we know on medical science blood. A lot of people still have no problem with blood being involved in pro wrestling. I know it was a different set of circumstances when you were wrestling, but when you wrestled, were you ever concerned if you had to follow a match where there was a lot of bloodshed and it was still on the canvas and the turnbuckles and things like that? <laughs> when I stepped into the ring, there was a big worry of whatever was on. <laughs> there could have been just all kinds of things. You just tried to stay away from it. No. It didn't really concern me. I tried to, you know, the ring's pretty big. I knew my way around the ring, and I would try to stay away from problematic situations if I could. Gotcha. I personally never never bled. Of course, in that era, you very rarely saw women bleed during a match. It's changed a lot now to where women sometimes are in hardcore matches and things like that and there's more blood but back then it was almost taboo to see blood in women's matches were you ever in a match where your opponent bled were on a show where there were women that bled during a match well now that i said that judy it was a saint regis high school in chicago and judy starfire bulldog me and when she bulldogged me, it broke my nose. I came up instantly looking like Jimmy Durante, bleeding, and I, I'll never forget. 
there was an older couple sitting on the front row, and I, I can't see very well, but I can see them. And she, she tugged at him and goes, look, I told you that was fake blood. I don't know where I'm at. I have to reach out and find an officer to help me get back to my dressing room. And then Dick the Bruiser comes in, and he says, Welcome to wrestling, Misty. <laughs> and the rest of history. So, yes, I bled all over that ring. <laughs> Accidents happen. Yeah. Now, one of the other problematic things that can happen in a match, and it is something that has always been in wrestling, it continues to be, it always will be, Sometimes the ring itself malfunctions, whether a rope breaks or boards pop up or the yep. turnbuckle comes loose, whatever the case may be. Were yep. you involved in very many matches where the actual ring itself became a problematic situation? There was a couple boards on bruisers that I felt weren't, quite what they should have been. So, I, you know, like I said, it's the same ring that goes town to town, and you learn this ring, and you learn what where to stay away from. So, you know, maybe a, maybe a couple handful of times, not 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 a lot. His rings were pretty pretty stable. In recent times. On the independent level, more often than not, promoters will count on the wrestlers on the card to set up and tear down the ring unless they have a wrestling school and use their students doing it. They usually ask right. the wrestlers on the card. Did you, right. did you find yourself helping set up and tear down the rings a lot in your career, or did they have a set just for that? Never, ever. That, that was Calypso Jim's area of expertise. Now, one of the people that we both know fairly well, someone that helped get me into the business, and I know you came across him quite a bit, uh-huh. Bobo Brazil Jr., who is still very active to this day in the ring, one of the most well-respected guys in the Midwest professional wrestling circuit. What are some of your memories of Bobo Brazil Jr.? Oh, my goodness. Like I said, he was the only one that I was allowed to talk to. He would look out for me. He would go out of his way. you make sure I was okay. I had what I needed. We'd have good mixed tag matches together. He was a lot of fun to work with. I just trusted him in the ring. He was a good worker. Uh, he was a, a gentleman, a, a true gentleman, and that was hard to find. So he would help me out in the ring. Misty, you should have done, should have done it like this. Next time, maybe try this. So he would offer up advice as well that I really appreciated. One of the things that Bo is very well known for is his tremendous 
chops on guys. I've seen people walking oh. around with welts on their chest two or three weeks after having wrestled Bo just from a casual chop from him. Did you see a lot of that type of thing after Bo would wrestle on a show where guys were wearing the war wounds? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes, he had a chop like nobody's business on a headbutt that would knock you out. Uh, fans that are listening that are native to the Midwest and have been going to wrestling for a very, very long time will probably remember that oftentimes when Bo Jr. would wrestle in the early to mid-90s, he would still be accompanied a lot of times by the original Bobo Brazil, his father. Uh, Bobo Brazil, one of the most famous professional wrestlers of all time, and he would still go out to be in the corner of Bo Jr. Did you get to spend a lot of time with people like Bobo Brazil and Wilbur Snyder and Baron Von Raschke, people like that that had been the heart and soul of the territory a generation prior to you? I think, um, yeah, I spent probably 10 minutes with his father, who was kind enough to ask me how it was going, how kind of night I was having, who I was wrestling, did I like the town. It was just, he was very, very nice. And then... um, Jerry the King Lawler, who sadly, I think, just had a stroke not too long ago, but he stopped by the hotel and we got to visit and talk and reminisce about the old days when we worked on the cards together. I hope I don't phrase this next question wrongly, but in the era where you wrestled, a lot of times the women's wrestlers were not showcasing a lot of athletic skill. A lot of times they were constricted to sort of brawling and hair pulling and things like that, even if they were capable of wrestling just as well as anybody regardless of gender. A lot of times the women's match was kept short and kept to a brawl. Who were some of the more athletic opponents that you faced that you think could have held their own against anybody if they were allowed to wrestle anybody? I would believe that would be Princess, the wild princess. Some parts unknown. She was uh, very... uh, uh, Ariel, we didn't have a lot of lady wrestlers that were as aerial as he, she was. She was a little wildfire. It was mostly brawling, but we had you. You have to understand to take ladies wrestling out of your. Hey, the ladies are on. Let's go get popcorn. Go to the bathroom instead of. Oh, the ladies are on. Let's sit and watch them. So we had to try twice as hard, I think, than the men. 
without being as aerial as they are now, the ladies. I mean, a drop kick here and there was about, oh, I don't know, besides the time that I got up on top of the cage match, and the only way out to win the cage match is through the door over the top, and I got on the top of the ring, and my pantyhose got stuck, and I realized, dear Lord, I'm afraid of heights, and she's down there shaking the, the, the cage, and I'm uh, and people are cheering. <laughs> I ripped my pantyhose all the way up. I didn't care. I got out, and I won. <laughs> Now, that's also something you don't see a lot of historically up until really the 2000s is stipulation matches for the ladies. It was usually considered that a ladies match was almost like a stipulation match where it was a special feature, so they didn't usually give strap matches or cage matches or lumberjack matches to the ladies. When you got the chance to do that, did you look forward to it even more than just a standard match because it was something different? Absolutely, because it wasn't kosher for a woman, women to be in a match, get thrown out, and there's guys all around the ring with belts, and they're smacking you, and they're not playing. They're smacking you. And you got to get back into the ring. So I, I thrived on it. I loved it. It was something different. I felt like I could take my licks. I loved it. But Bruiser's the one that came up with the ideas of the ladies in the cage match. He, he gets credit for everything. Now, Dick the Bruiser was nationally known, of course, uh, way before he even had his own company, he was nationally known wrestling on national TV back in the 50s and having built his reputation then. When you tell people today that you wrestled for Dick the Bruiser, do you still get that recognition of knowing Dick the Bruiser, which kind of helps cement your legitimacy in the business since you did work for him? Yes. Yes. When I say I worked for Dick the Bruiser, they instantly here in Indiana know who Bruiser is, who Bruiser was. I get a, I know, I watched you growing up on TV, or I watched you wrestle. And that feels good that they still remember me. (laughs) And they still remember Bruiser. Absolutely. One of the most legendary people out of Indiana, for sure. Absolutely. One of the ways that a lot of wrestlers, especially from like the 60s and 70s, would be remembered because there just wasn't a lot of footage saved of their wrestling was through photographs. And even into the 80s and early 90s, photographs were something that a lot of wrestlers used to sort of preserve their body of work and be able to show Mm -hmm. people when they retired who they wrestled and where and sort of have those memories. I know Dick the Bruiser's son-in-law, Scott Romer, one of the great 
photographers, not just for wrestling, but just in general. And there were a lot of great photographers out there during that time. Did you get a lot of photos that you were able to use as personal mementos and keepsakes during your career? I did. I did. I've loaded most of them up on my Facebook page. A lot of fans that were faithful that would follow me from place to place would take pictures. I had another photographer that did my headshot. Really great photographer. I don't, sorry, I don't remember his name. But yeah, a lot of them came from uh, people that just are willing to take pictures. I wish my path would have crossed paths with Scott Romo. He is the best photographer ever. Agreed. <laughs> oh, another thing that a lot of wrestlers took pride in and they use it as a tool to further their career and market themselves was getting into the wrestling magazines, which during your career were still very plentiful. You could go to your local newsstand and drugstore and supermarket and buy three or four different magazines about professional wrestling if you wanted back then. Did you get a lot of press in the magazines at different points? Unfortunately, I made Pro Wrestling Illustrated twice, and it was just um, a recap of the matches. I didn't, my pictures never made it into anything like that. But my matches did. <laughs> At very first time that PWI mentioned you, what was your reaction like just seeing your name in print in a national publication like that. It was like, oh, my goodness. That's me. That's that's me. (laughs) The kid from Kansas City. Yeah. It was pretty great. And then when it when when my matches came on Bruiser Bedlam and it would be I would be at work and people would be like, That's you I'm like, Yep, that's me. One of the things a lot of wrestlers will remember for the rest of their lives is that moment when they first get approached by a fan to either get an autograph or pose for a picture with them or buy a piece of merchandise, things of that nature. Do you have that moment when you first got approached by a fan that wanted to spend a little bit of time with Miss Misty Dawn. I absolutely do, and I will will for, will remember it forever. He had bought my picture. I sold headshots, and he had brought it up and asked me to autograph it. And he had Down syndrome, and he just thought I was the best thing. And he hung out with me for probably a good five ten minutes, and thought he was special. And I tried to make him feel super special, but he really, he made me feel special. Now, on the flip side of that, in the Midwest, a lot of fans could get very rowdy very quickly. <laughs> and there were some times that a lot of wrestlers were lucky to get out of the ring and back to the locker room in one piece. 
especially in places like Chicago, you would hear chants of "We want blood." And Bobby Heenan had someone actually fire a gun at him during a match. So things could get very dangerous. Were you ever yes. in a situation where things got extremely tense as far as the crowd went? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was for a promotion up in up in Michigan. And I had to be snuck out of there after that match in the ambulance because they were so upset with me. <laughs> so they stuck me out in the ambulance. Now, when you're riding in a way in an ambulance, <laughs> were you still afraid of something potentially happening where the fans would stop the ambulance and get to you, or did you know you were fairly safe at that point? No, I, I thought I was safe, but that was the first time that I had been flipped from baby to heel, and they hated me. <laughs> they hated me. So I did it right. And when you get the fans that are booing you and maybe throwing things and you see that anger in their eyes, do you take a special sense of pride in that when that happens in the moment or are you a little more leery of what you're doing in the moment? No, I take pride in that. They were throwing popcorn and pop at me, and I, you know, and the more the fired up they'd get at me, it, it just it made me feel good. I, they were in, they they came to enjoy the show, and if they're that involved that they're throwing things at me, they are enjoying the show. I'll go take a shower. I'll be fine. <laughs> And I traveled with Wild Polynesian Man, who was six foot three, two hundred and fifty pounds Samoan. So I wasn't worried. A wild Polynesian man, to my knowledge, is not related to the really famous NOI wrestling family that of course were a lot of the Samoan wrestlers originated. He was sort of separate from them. And, of course, in the Midwest, you did not have a very large Polynesian presence as far as the population mm -hmm. goes. Do you think yeah. that the wild Polynesian man was helped by that since he stood out so much and people just didn't see a lot of Polynesians? Or do you think it may have hurt him because there wasn't that Polynesian presence? Where he normally oh, no. oh no, I think that helped him. Uh, we came up with face paint, and he had me pick out a song for him, which was "I Am Iron Man," and he got this big long stick, and he wore a uh, uh, I can't believe. It's Sophia Maioya or something that they wear around them. And he wore his, his pearl necklace, and he he stood out like he got everybody's attention.
And when you got out of the ring, as far as in-ring wrestling goes, were there any other roles within wrestling that had interest you as far as giving those a try to stay connected to the business? Did you want to referee or manage or promote your own show? Um, after I retired from the business, yes. I, I came out again of retirement in 2009 and wrestled for Memphis Lady Wrestling down in Memphis and I thought I, I could still do it, but I didn't have it in me. I, I couldn't. I would love to be a ring manager. I would still love to do that to this day. One of the other things that a lot of wrestlers today don't fully appreciate or understand is in your era of wrestling, you couldn't just go on social media and ask, does anybody know somebody that makes wrestling gear and have 30 choices within a couple of minutes? You had to basically know who made gear. Your choices were usually just one or two people that would be able to make the gear for you. A lot of the patterns were... And more simple back then for wrestling gear. They aren't as intricate as a lot of people wear now. What was your gear situation like? Did you have that set go-to person that made everything for you? Did you design your own or let someone else design it? Yes. No, I designed it. And then um, a friend of mine's mother sewed them together. So I had like three of three outfits that I rotated. And then my sister made me a ring jacket with Misty Dawn across the back like a boxer would wear type thing. Uh, even more scarce, even today really, than gear makers are the boot makers. And wrestling <laughs> boots were expensive and they were hard to come by. Usually you had to special order them in most instances. What was it like getting a pair of wrestling boots when you started wrestling? Oh, that was the biggest thrill to finally have my own boots that I didn't have to borrow somebody else's boots so I could wrestle. So you, I don't know. It felt like, okay, it's real. I made it. I've got my own stuff. <laughs> I made it. And when you are wrestling someone, when you start out, that has more experience than you do, were you sort of borrowing, like, gear and boots and things like that and learning where to get these things and seeing what worked for them and what didn't? Or were the veterans at that point expecting you to be able to learn all of that on your own? Like where where to get my wrestling boots and my gears and, and outfits and stuff like that? Yes. Actually, the other female wrestlers helped me get 
wrestling boots, showed me where to go, gave me names of places. And since I had my own outfits made, I didn't need that done. And it was easy to buy elbow pads, knee pads. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, much easier now than back then for sure, but it's good you didn't have a lot of struggle with that because I know choices were not as readily available. No. No. Back then, you got whatever you got. You made it work, and it was good. It was good. One of the other things a lot of people struggle with in wrestling is, of course, the injuries, and those are just part of the business everyone accepts when they get into it. If you're going to be in for any length of time, you're going to have something happen, whether it's a minor injury or something major. What were some of the injuries that you had during the course of your career? I got my nose broke by Judy Star, uh, yeah, Judy Starfire. Uh, defending my title, I got my, I lost my gallbladder, um, defending my title against Princess Wava, or Princess Unknown here in Indiana, Indiana. I have two metal plates in my neck. I have a total knee replacement and I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Well, we're getting down to the last few minutes of the show, and I want to make sure there's plenty of time for you. If there's anything that you would like to say to the listeners today, if you want to plug and promote absolutely anything in the world, floor is all yours. Well, it's just uh, if you're interested in Misty Dawn, if you remember me or you want to connect with me, you can look me up via Facebook, Misty Dawn. Um, you can look me up on YouTube, Power Slam Presents Misty Dawn. And that's about all I have to say. Thanks for listening. Well, Miss Misty Dawn, I want to thank you very, very much for taking time to be with us today. We appreciate it greatly, and I look forward to the next time you visit us. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely our pleasure. Fans, definitely jump on the YouTubes, check out Miss Misty Dawn, see what she was all about. Always a pleasure to have a WWA alumni here on the show. We definitely appreciate Misty Dawn joining us. Don't forget, you can find me tomorrow night in Ocean Shores, Washington for RWA. Also, I would normally be at CPW Presents theatrical wrestling in Arlington, but I will not be there tomorrow night, but definitely if you're in Arlington, Washington, go check that show out and support them. Just get out there, support any local wrestling that you have near you. Buy a ticket, go watch a show, buy some merchandise, support what they're doing so they can continue doing so. We will be back with you Sunday afternoon. We have Bobby Blade out of the great state of Kentucky. Very long time wrestling personality. He wrestled, refereed, managed, promoted. He's done it all. We're excited to have him on the show. 
And then don't forget to join us next week, one week from this very day. We will be back with you, and we will be talking with Chad French, the promoter of Paul Cade, which is in New Albany, Indiana. I will be on that show. It is the last Paul Cade event, he says, and proceeds now go half to the local Humane Society, half to the family of the deceased Sean Patrick O'Brien, whom we lost just last week. So definitely we're going to be telling you how to support that show and how to help the people and the pets in need. So make sure you're with us for all of that. We will be back with you soon. Everybody stay safe out there.